It's still spring break in Brainerd Pequot School District. You may have noticed that, a few less people around. Amy and I are going to leave this end of this week to go to Florida. That part of last week's opening was true. I know there weren't many people here last week with spring break, but I had this opening. Well, you got to hear it to understand it. But we are going to go this Friday, or this uh, weekend, or uh, starting this weekend for a little while down in Florida. And, and we uh, rented a place back in June to stay while we're down there. Well, we rent it in June, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's nice and all, but kind of summer, you know, it's a long ways off. Really weren't very excited. I mean, it was okay. We knew it was going to be there. And then January hits, it, and, you know, winter kind of sets in and starts getting in, and we get a little more excited. It's a little closer. Winter's coming. Yeah, this is going to be great. Then the end of February, it got a little ugly. I wanted to be done with winter. All of a sudden, I wanted to be in Florida. And then last week, rain, ice dams, winter wouldn't relent. I became desperate. I started counting the minutes. How long until I get out of here? I think I need a vacation and some warm weather. Sorry, sorry. It's that way with the Israelites. You're going, wait a minute. He cannot transition from that opening to the Israelites. Ah, but I can. You see, when it came to the Messiah... The, the Israelites uh, kind of uh, came and went with how they saw the Messiah. I mean, when things weren't going their way, oh, they're crying out to God, send your anointed one, save us. Yet when things were going their way, yeah, well, who needs a Messiah? We got things under control. And that's kind of how it went. The key was their understanding of their need. But what they didn't have is an understanding of what the Messiah was going to do. And that's today's passage. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 4, starting verse 2. That's page 569 in the Blue Bibles. Isaiah chapter 4, starting verse 2 through verse 6. In that day... The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Israel or in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for the life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem, from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. After weeks of hearing about God's judgment, hearing about the Israelites or Judeans' sin, hearing what John called very tough passages, we've come to a passage of hope. 
In fact, this is the first full messianic, messianic being about the Messiah, the first full messianic passage we have in Isaiah. This is not going to be the last by any means. But when I just read it, I'm not so sure you heard that messianic message. It didn't sound like it was telling of the coming Messiah. And that's often the challenge in reading Old Testament prophets. They, they kind of write in a figurative speech. Often the language is a type of almost symbolic code of what they're referring to. And if we're not really, really versed in Old Testament writings, and especially the prophets, well, we just don't hear it. And today's passage is a classic example. In that day, what have we been talking about for the, since chapter, the beginning of chapter 2? The judgment of God. The judgment of God week after week about the sins and the failures of Judah and Jerusalem and the, God, the judgment of God on them. In that day, the day of judgment, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The branch of the Lord refers to the Messiah. Now you go, how do I know that? I hear Tom saying that, but how do I know that? Because if you study the Bible and if you look at the Hebrew and you see how that term is used, you see that's referring to the Messiah, the branch of the Lord. And the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. This all comes after all this judgment. And that's a critical thing to understand. See, Israel didn't usually think it needed a Messiah. But when things didn't go well, then it thought it did. It's just like in Romans, the last book we studied before this. John goes on, or John, John wrote, no. Paul goes on. For three chapters of how we're under the wrath of God and we're sinners and we desperately need a Savior. So that when he gets to the part about our Savior coming, Jesus Christ, and the justifying, saving work he's going to do, we care. If we don't think we need a Savior, guess what? We don't care. So Isaiah, God through Isaiah has gone on and on about Isaiah's or about uh, Judah and Jerusalem's judgment and how they truly do need a Messiah. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about foretelling prophecy, prophecy that tells about the future. There's foretelling, that's foretelling of truth. Not that this isn't truth, but this is foretelling, telling about the future. And it's talking about it in a series of different time periods. It's going to be fulfilled. It's called telescoping, telescope, telescoping prophecy, fulfillment. What, what it means is, in this particular passage, the Jews are going to see this, and they're going to see it fulfilled when they come out of captivity in Babylon. They're going to see that as fulfillment, okay? Then it's going to be filled again, fulfilled again when Jesus Christ comes. And then it's going to be fulfilled again in the eschaton when Jesus Christ returns. Telescoping just means it's fulfilled in different time periods. 
it's not fully fulfilled until the last time period. So when people say, wait, wasn't that fulfilled there? No, wait, it's still yet to be fully fulfilled. And that's what's going on. So again, the first time that this passage that we're studying today is fulfilled is when the Jews think, when they're allowed by the king of uh, the Medes and Persians, Cyrus, to come back to the land. And they see this as, oh, they're allowed to come back and the, and the land's going to become beautiful and the fruit's going to become beautiful, but that doesn't require a Messiah. That's not the main point of this. The branch of the Lord is the anointed one, the anointed one of God. And it's beautiful. He's beautiful and glorious. You notice how last week we talked about the the women of Jerusalem, and they were a metaphor for other things, but in and of themselves, they were trying to be beautiful, and yet they were ugly on the inside. When he calls the, the Messiah uh, beautiful and gorgeous, think of the most beautiful, gorgeous person, thing, whatever there is in the world, and that is nothing compared to what the Messiah is. And the Messiah's beauty isn't just like a, a physical thing that... that Fades in time, there's a beauty, there's an inner essence of beauty. It's the very definition. God is the very definition of beauty. And that's what the Messiah is going to be. Beautiful, glorious. And then he's the fruit of the land. The fruit of the land, I know this, you're probably sitting there going, how would we ever understand this? The way we read it, it takes study. But the fruit of the land means that the Messiah will come from Israel. He will be what is now, by the time the come, becomes a Jew. As it goes down. And that's what the Messiah is. Messiah is a Jew. When Jesus Christ comes, he's a fruit of Judaism. He comes out of Judaism. He is a Jew. And then in verse 3, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. What in the world does that mean? All that are left in Zion means the Jews, the Jews, okay? The remnant. Remember, remember we started out with 12 tribes, Israelites, way back when? And now we've whittled it down to a few Jews. In the first century, right? We lost 10 tribes when they got wiped out by Assyria. This is about this time that Isaiah is writing. It's going to get whittled down more and more and more and more. By the time Jesus comes, there's going to be a remnant. It's going to be a few Jews. And it's going to get whittled down even further to Jews that believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So those that believe that are left, are the remnant of the original people of God. And everyone who has been recorded in the life of Jerusalem, the book of life, that is the Gentiles who are, through the Messiah, coming and being grafted into the people of God. If you remember Romans. Okay? So what we have here is Jews, 
that, are, that believe, that are the remnant, that remain, the Gentiles being grafted in, that's generally us, into this people of God. And they will be called holy. They'll be called holy. It's interesting. See, it doesn't say they're going to be holy. It says they're going to be called holy. See, the burden isn't on them. It doesn't say that they'll earn it by being holy. It says they will be holy and the burden is on God. But how's he going to be able to make them holy when they're clearly sinners? First, let's define two ways of being holy. First, anything associated with God we call as holy because God is holy, associated with God is holy, and then also people can or things can become holy in and of themselves, okay? But let's start with that first one. Holy, also meaning set apart. God chose the nation of Israel. They didn't do anything. They didn't earn it. They weren't holy. He chose them and made them a holy nation. The challenge was sin, right? Holy God, unholy people. How do they? They can't because God can't be around sin, so he comes with the law. The law was not meant to make them holy. It was meant for them to be in relationship with the holy God and to deal with sin. Their problem was they wouldn't even keep the law. They wouldn't even keep the sacrificial part of the law that dealt with their sins. It didn't work. Wednesday nights in Galatians, we're, we're about ready to leap right into the part of it didn't work. Because they couldn't keep it. So God had to find a way, a way to make the people holy so that they could be in relationship with him. He had to find a way to make them righteous. He needed to make them just. He had to be able to call them just and right even though they weren't just and right and they couldn't keep the law. How was he going to do this? They couldn't be holy. He needed them to be holy to be in relationship, how's he going to make them holy? Verse 4. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. By washing them clean. What? By washing away their filth, in other words, their sins, by cleansing them of their guilt. Now, it isn't that they're not guilty. In fact, that's an important part. Part of this whole process is them acknowledging that they are guilty of sin, confessing that, and repenting of it. It isn't like we pretend nothing happened. That's not what God's doing here. You confess your sins, acknowledge your guilt, Repent from that, and God declares that they are just in, their, in, in, in his eyes because their sentence has been served by somebody else. 
the righteousness of the Messiah is, big word here, imputed to them because the Messiah served their sentence. The anointed one of God takes their place, washes them clean by serving their sentence, and they're declared just and right in the eyes of God. In other words, they're justified. They become holy. They aren't holy. They become holy. They are declared holy by God through the work of the Messiah. Now, how exactly does this work? He says, from its midst by the spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. There's not much agreement on what that means, quite frankly, amongst the scholars. Some see that spirit as the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And that would be easy enough to understand. It convicts them of their guilt, convicts them of their needs of, for a Messiah. But as you'll see in the ESV, the S in spirit in both those is not capitalized. So the translators of the ESV don't believe that is the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word can be translated a couple of different ways. And the spirit is used in a couple of different ways. And some people see that as a process. A process of judgment and refining. Keeping with what we've done in chapters 2 and 3 of burning off the impurities of the people. Now, I hate to put you off, but this is going to be covered more clearly in chapter 56. We're in chapter 4. Trust me, we'll get there in a year and a half or so. Gone to verse 5. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Over all the glory, there'll be a canopy. This echoes back to when the Israelites were in the desert, in the wilderness, and God led them by uh, a cloud by day and a, and a fire by night. And, and literally led them day by day on where to go. Didn't tell them where they were going. That's why it's called the wandering in the, in the wilderness. Because they wandered literally following, these, following God as he led them around the wilderness. And that's what God is saying. This, this whole site of Zion. In other words, all his people, the whole assembly, he's going to lead as he led them. How's he going to do that? Well, clearly we know that he does that through the Holy Spirit. That his new people will be led by God and he will build a canopy over the entire people. Think about that. Over all the people he's brought together, Jew and Gentile. Now, we have the benefit of having read Paul, so we know when Paul talks about in Romans and Ephesians, this bringing together of this people of God, he brings them together and he puts a canopy over them. The idea is that the Spirit of God, 
as the Jews would understand it, we understand, obviously, the Holy Spirit becomes this guy, this leader. And he does it in a way that, it's, that he's with them. I mean, if, if, an, if a Jew was here right now, if a, if a, a Judean where Isaiah was writing, and, and I was saying that the Holy Spirit, that God himself was going to dwell in them, they would freak out. They go, that couldn't happen. Do you know how unholy I am? And I'm unholy, and God can't be that close to me. In fact, I don't want to be that close to God. I will die. But that's what the Messiah does. The Messiah takes away that obstacle between the people of God and God himself. Hebrews, he tears the curtain. He opens the way to the Holy of Holies. He opens the way to God himself for sinful people who are now declared just and are able to be in direct relationship with God to the extent that God dwells directly in them. Praise the Lord. And he will build this canopy. And there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. He'll always be there. He's our shade. He's our helper, our counselor, our guide to very truth, as John says in his gospel. And this process, this process leads to holiness. Remember we talked about two ways to be holy? One is we're declared holy as the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us, but the other way is where we become holy. Or as the Holy Spirit works in us over the process we call sanctification, he causes or transforms us into being righteous, into being holy as we follow the teachings of the Messiah. And for those that truly believe, every day he's their protector, their guide, the very transforming God that created everything. Just like we get excited with the thought of spring or maybe the thought of getting away from winter. Maybe some of you just came back and are going, the snow's still here, huh? Sorry. It comes down to understanding our situation and our need. Israelites, they looked at other nations in the time of Isaiah. That's who they thought was their Messiah, their Savior. If I can just get Egypt, if I can get Assyria, if I can get Babylon, at any given time, they were looking to one of those nations 
to save them. And it didn't work. And then they were in captivity, and then Cyrus lets them go back, and they think, oh, this is it, I get to go back. And then we see in Ezra and Nehemiah all the problems. We're going to hear about that later in Isaiah. And then the Greeks come, and they're upset, and they pray out to God and say, God, where's our Savior? And they kind of get one in Judas Maccabee, and 140, he leads a revolt, and they're actually independent from 140 to around 50. And they have this glorious age where they're actually independent, and then, and then the Romans show up. The Romans show up because they're so in much infighting in Jerusalem that they just went there to stabilize this nothing country so it didn't blow up and cause them problems. So we find them crying out to God again for a Savior, for a Messiah around the first century. And God sends Jesus. He didn't turn out to be what they wanted. He didn't turn out to be what they thought they needed. But he was the same Messiah that Isaiah talked about here. And that the Old Testament will talk about over and over again. Because God knew better than they did the Messiah they truly needed. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge that we need a Messiah. We need a Christ. We need the Savior. We acknowledge that we're sinners and we fall short. We acknowledge that through truly believing that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the one and only, and by confessing our sins and turning, Lord, that we can have new life. But that isn't a one and done thing, Lord. Help us understand what it means to live as your children under your canopy, under your shelter, being guided by your spirit. It's in the mighty name of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, we pray. Amen.